I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Pam McPherson and her son, Andrew. Together in their own unique ways, they are bringing awareness to end-of-life services. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. We're joined by Pam McPherson and her son, Andrew. They join us in celebration of Mother's Day. This unique mother and son team are giving a voice to end-of-life care in their own unique ways. Pam is the writer of poetry and also a vigil volunteer. And Andrew, he serves as principal at HealthSpiron LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based health policy consulting firm. And as senior policy advisor to several national end-of-life organizations, including the National Partnership for Hospice Innovation and the Coalition to Transform Advanced Care, known to some of us as CTAC. And I met Andrew about a year ago at the CTAC Summit, and he has such a passion for end-of-life and improving end-of-life services. And I always wondered where you found that. And as I was reading your mom's book of poetry and her wonderful book, Vigil, The Poetry of Presence, I feel like I found where you found your passion, and it was inspired by your mom. So I'm really happy to welcome both of you to the show. Welcome to the show, mom and son. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank Thank you. you. Well, you know, what is unique about you guys is that both of you work in the end-of-life industry, and so I really wanted to talk a little bit about what you do. Now, I... Andrew sent me, Pam, a wonderful poetry book that I fell in love with and so many of my friends are in love with. So, but what, in the beginning, what, when did you notice this desire to work with those facing end of life? Well, that's interesting, Kimberly, um, because when I'm thinking about this, my thoughts harken back to my maternal grandmother, who was an undertaker, an early woman in that in that business or industry. And so I'm sure there was some influence there. Um, but the next thought I have is in uh, when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's On Death and Dying book came out, really her initial seminal work. That was 1969. And um, I was in my early 20s then, and I remember that book um buying that book and being drawn to it. So I think that was, I think that was the moment. However, um, if I think about, but when did I really act upon that? I think it was following the the death of a very adored favorite aunt, my aunt Margaret, um, who in 1984 was diagnosed with cancer and really only lived a matter of months. And um, I went down, she lived in Florida, and I went down to Florida to see her. Um, I wanted to see her before she died. And I took Andrew with me. Now, this is the interesting thing for me, because I hadn't thought about this piece um, until just recently, uh, because I'm wondering if seeds were planted for him at that time. <laughs> he, he was too. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and um, I went down and 
when I was with this, this Aunt Margaret, um, I knew she was going to die. She was a very stoic um, Catholic, Irish Catholic woman, wouldn't talk about it. And I felt like the best thing I could do for her before I left was in the yellow pages, look up the word hospice. I wasn't sure exactly what it was, but I knew she needed it, whatever it was. So I made the arrangement for hospice to uh, come in and make an initial visit as I was leaving town. So I, I think that was my seminal moment. She then died just a few weeks later. Um, and by that spring, I was enrolled in the hospice volunteer training program here at home. Oh, wow. So you immediately had this connection to hospice, even though this incident made it come to the forefront. Um, that's really interesting. It's, it's a very common story. People involved, particularly hospice volunteers, um, they have an experience with end of life with someone they care about, they love, whatever, and it either went really well or not so well. And um, and they see hospice as um, not a panacea, but um, an amazing resource, and they want to become involved. Um, in supporting the program. Often volunteers have the same kind of a story. Now, Andrew was young at the time, but you started volunteering with hospice. So he he was sort of exposed to what hospice was really early on. Do you, do you think some of that has impacted what your son is now doing now? You know, as parents, we, we're often role modeling and not consciously necessarily thinking about what our kids are taking in of what they witness in in their parents, but uh, it certainly was a part of our household life here because I was um, a hospice volunteer going out to see clients, and then I was actually a hospice volunteer coordinator. Um, shared that position for um, 16 years, so there was a lot of um, of conversation in the house about. Uh, just the, the work, the comfort, the comfort. There was a lot of, um, there were many threads of um, end of life care woven in throughout our household life, I think. And you just never know what the kids are picking up on or what's influencing that. Right. And Andrew, I mean, now you're like a health policy consultant. Um, you work in D.C. and you also do a lot of senior policy advisors for some national organizations. I mean, what do you think? I mean, you grew up around um, your mother being a part of an employee of a hospice organization, um, volunteering um, as a volunteer. Do you feel like it's had an impact on your life? No question at all. I mean, if you know my, for those that know my mom, uh, my mom has an impact on everybody that is in her world. Uh, and not just a, a, a momentary impact, but a lasting one. And I was, you know, fortunate enough with my brother and my sister to have a, to have a front row seat to that. Uh, there's a famous um, program that's international now, led by Michael Hebb, uh, called Death Over Dinner. And uh that was really the theme of my childhood was death over dinner. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. My father uh, is a, a physician and a pathologist and uh, my mom uh, so involved with hospice and committed to the dying uh, for so long now and such a passionate advocate that I, I think back to so many dinner conversations about patients, but really about people, real people and their life stories and what my mom was seeing uh, through her, her work in hospice and in our, our community here in, in uh, northern Vermont, 
uh, but also the sort of the scientific perspective that my father had and, and being able to have, you know, very uh, robust uh, discussions uh, over dinner. But yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny, I'll, I'll be very honest with you at the time, uh, and I think you just alluded to this, Mom, at the time it wasn't clear to me what the impact was on me. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't found my passion yet. Uh, I was getting involved politically, um, but healthcare was not necessarily my focus um, until my brother, uh, Scott, uh, was in a serious accident, car accident. Uh, right when I graduated from college. Um, and it was really that experience of, of caring for him as a family unit in the hospital for several months um, that led me to to healthcare policy in Washington and then ultimately to end of life care. But uh, you look back and there's no there's no aha moment, but man, uh, the seeds were planted pretty early. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always one to not fight what you're passionate about and accept it and uh boy has this been a fulfilling uh fulfilling work for me and and uh, i'm very passionate about it and, and that largely is from how i grew up wow and you know i did not know that your brother was in an accident and you you have a perspective almost like a caregiver not only as a family unit but in like a brother taking care of someone so that is a really interesting point of view to carry to Washington. Yeah, my, my brother survived and thrived, uh, but it was a very scary moment for our family. Um, but uh, there's there's so many lessons that come out of that for all of us. And you have to have, I think, uh, so many folks that I work with in Washington in the healthcare space have, a, we all have personal stories, right? And uh, so many individuals that I work with in the healthcare space have had some sort of front row seat to how the American healthcare system functions or dysfunctions. And um, that drives a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of our collective work. And so um, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to marry my passion for politics with my passion for healthcare and, and now end of life care. So uh, I, I serve uh, a whole variety of, of organizations in the end of life care space nationally and uh, have the truly great honor of representing them in Washington and, and with Congress uh, in this administration. So uh, it's, it's incredibly fulfilling. And I'll tell you uh, one anecdote, and that is um, there's been, a, of course, a lot of challenges uh, politically uh, for issues related to end-of-life care. And I think um, we've experienced some incredible you know, political uh, toxicity, um, and, and it seems to uh, sort of uh, rear its head every every 10 years or so. And um, what I will tell you is that every member of Congress uh, and every individual working in this space does have a personal story. And so often the conversation quickly moves from policy to personal stories. And uh, whether it be positive or negative, uh, we all have had a loved one who has experienced death. So uh, it's a great honor to do the work, but uh, no question it's, it's an influence from my mom. Well, you know what, that is, that's a really great thing to be aware of, especially someone like me outside of Washington, that, that even while discussing policy and what to do better, or what to change, um, that everyone's coming from a personal perspective. And so you know what, sometimes we forget about that, that those are people are actually human in Congress and in the polit in the political world, they're actually human beings, too. Yeah, no question. Um, and I and I think that when you get to story, that's where you find meaning. That that's so true. Very true. Yeah, and it and it brings to life um, the both. You know, the, our system of care in this country 
um, has a, a lot of problems. Uh, there's a lot of, I call it the big gap of what people uh, typically receive when they're experiencing advanced illness end of life versus um, what they want. And uh, unfortunately, our priorities uh, are sort of backwards in many ways. But there's, fortunately, there's lots of uh, promise and lots of uh, many solutions that we're testing um, and exploring to design uh, new ways of paying and providing healthcare and end-of-life care in this country. And it's personal story that illuminate um, those ideas and that illuminate um, the potential solutions to uh, really improve care and to ensure that, that really people's personal wishes are always honored. Um, so I, I, I'm optimistic, and I think we're making a lot of progress in Washington. Um, but we can't do it without that sort of art personal connection. Yeah. Well, and I think that's very valid to even, and I'm really pleased to hear that. Um, but it also opens a door for what I've experienced reading your mom's book was something very personal. Um, and I found myself just engulfed. Sometimes I was, I hope that some vigil volunteer is sitting there thoughtfully thinking about me as your mother sat there by the bedside of so many patients. And this book is so beautiful. Um, what is, I, I, I mean, it was, I'm not a big poetry reader, but your the work that your mother has done within this book has really spoke to me. And, and so it just brings me to the point that I want to know, you know, what is your favorite poem within this really great work of art? <laughs> I mean, I'm so biased. <laughs> I have to only pick one, and that's not fair. Um, that's true. I'm gonna, I'm going to uh, just one. I'd like to offer just one quick sort of re- reflection as a, as your son on the book, which is, um, yeah, I had the great privilege of of learning from my mom over the years, and, and I think that your book really um, brings people into your heart, but also into your minds and and your observations. Uh, and it's so rich in your observations about human life and quality of life. And uh, it goes so far beyond end-of-life care for me. And so I think it's a, a privilege to, that you have offered to others to, to be part of that. So that's, that's an opening thing, I would say. Um, I think as what I, I learned a lot when I read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, one theme for me was sort of this idea of um, your poetry brings people into your mind and, and allows them to make their own judgments about the situations that you find yourself in um, with with people you don't know. Um, and there's so many different aspects to it for me that are are teaching um, uh, about not really not just about life, but about life in general. But I do have two favorites, if you don't mind, Kimberly. Um, no, one please. is uh, one is called Winding Down. And Winding Down, um, it's on page 77. It's in the chapter. Um, called process, and what I there's another theme that I and I, and I think that winding down really uh, uh, is emblematic of a broader theme of the book, which is that um, this whole idea of mystery, and uh, you know that mystery is okay, um, and that not knowing and not knowing what the path is, um, and that my mom is there to sort of be respectful of that and. And maybe if appropriate help guide through this sort of mysterious process, um, I think winding down really, uh, really sort of is emblematic of that theme of, of, of her writing, where it's talking about 
you know, having an open heart, uh, focused on presence, um, a compassionate and loving gift in these last days, hours, and moments. It is all. It is sacred. It is enough. The whole idea of it is enough, uh, I think, is just so respectful of mystery. So that would be one. The other one is on page 47 in chapter 3 of Bearing Witness. And um, it's called Whose Son Is This? And, uh, you know, there's no, I have no great, you know, sort of like thoughtful thing to say about it, except I said, what the hell? <laughs> that was one of my favorites, too. I love her last line. I love her last line of, you know, I can't help but think about myself, right? So where she's um, bearing witness, I lean in and softly say, so go to your mother. She awaits you, her tribe, who had such a difficult life. Why? Spirit, you are now free. So, you know, Eve's getting to share, this individual is getting to share in some of, um, you know, what the relationship I have with my mother. So that, that's another one that just immediately, I think that's the one, Mom, that when you published the book, I called you and asked you to read it to me. Oh, <laughs> wow. That is so sweet. You said, I read your, I read the preface and I, I um, read the first chapter and there's one poem that just, <clears throat> that just um, stays with me. And he said, I've even read it out loud to myself. And um, I, was, I said, oh, and he said, um, would you read it to me? <laughs> so I got out of bed, <laughs> got my book. That is so sweet. You know, Andrew, I am now your older sister too. I mean, I've got to be part of this family. You guys have <laughs> such a loving open, respectful. I, I just, even talking to you the first time, Pam was like, I want to be a part of this family. You know, I'm drawing up adoption papers. I mean, and, and just the relationships y'all have and the connection. I love it. Um, I really do. Well, thank you. Thank you. You'd be a very welcome member. <laughs> That's right, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. I don't need another one. That's right. <laughs> That's so true. Well, you know, I when I was I had a, a friends over, and I often love to read um, books when I'm interviewing someone about their work and. This has been on my nightstand for, you know, a, a month now. And there's been many friends that would come into my house and the book would travel throughout my entire house, whether it was in the kitchen or because you could it's a book you can pick up and then you you have to pause and really take it in. Um, and everyone that has come into my house has picked up this book. And the first thing they say is, I love the title. I love the title. And really, they're drawn to the poetry of presence. Like, wow, that is an interesting thing. A lot of people ask me, what is vigil? And and I was like, I tried to explain it to them about what a vigil volunteer does, but they were really, that was really foreign to them. But so can you help us better understand what a vigil volunteer, what do they do? How can, how can you help the listeners better understand that role within end of life? Oh, sure. Um, well, you know, vigil, if you looked it up in the dictionary, you know, the words would say watchful or present or, um, you know, to be quiet in presence for an extended time. Um, vigil sitting related to people who are dying is usually done in the last 48 hours, I would 
say approximately of life. Um, and uh, the actual act of sitting is, and I'll talk a little bit about the program in a minute, but the actual act of sitting is, is bringing yourself to someone, almost always a stranger, um, to just be present with and to them while they're going through their dying process. Most of the time, people are not awake. Uh, occasionally they are, but much of the time, it's really in the last literally hours of life. And um, so it's about opening your heart, leaving your, your life and all that's in it outside the room they're in and entering entering with an open heart ready to um, simply be. It's about being and not doing. Um, it, it's a, that's what presence is about. Um, would you like to hear something about the program? Please. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because um, it's a program that um, began in 2001, I believe, out in Eugene, Oregon, at um, I think it's called Sacred Heart Medical Center there. Um, but the seed for it was planted about 15 years before that when a, a, an ICU nurse, Sandra Clark, was on duty and had a patient, a gentleman who was very frail and dying, and um, he said to her, will you stay with me? And she said, I will, but I just have to check on my other patients first, make sure they're set, and then I will come back. And, you know, needless to say, she came back and he had died. And that literally, <clears throat> that was so difficult for her to hold in her heart for a long time. Um, there are just so many pe ways that people are cared for. But this particular man, that all he needed for care was presence. And she felt like she had really failed him. Um, so she had this idea for um, having volunteers sit vigil with people who are dying and floated the idea a few times over a number of years and just it didn't go anywhere and I think at one point about almost 15 years later she was talking with someone who was in spiritual care and and saying you know I have this idea and they said uh, write a proposal it sounds awesome and let's make it happen so her idea was that they would even use um, even hospital employees um, to sit with someone who didn't want to be alone when they were dying. And um, um, there are lots of um, programs now throughout the country and even, I think, in Europe. Um, and they're all pretty independent. There's, there are some guidelines for how to set up a program like this, but it's not anything that's accredited or or um, approved, it's, it's kind of a program that's massaged with hands and heart into shape um, where it exists. And it's often in hospitals. And it's a core of community volunteers. It might be, there might be a hospital employees. I know here in Burlington, where we are, um, sometimes there are medical students that take part in it, which is wonderful. It's so wonderful for their, um, for them to have an experience like this in their training. Um, and it's an on-call program. They're just 
only happens a couple of times a month up here. It seems that um, there is someone that has a, a need and an email goes out. And if we're able to do it, we respond and pick a three or four hour block of time to go in and just be present. Wow. So you sort of, you sort of wait. And so when someone is close to death and you, is it 12 to 24 hours or did you say 48 hours earlier? Well, you know, there isn't an absolute about it, but it's usually someone in the last couple of days of life and it could be in the last hours. What intrigued you about this? What, what, what kind of called to you that you thought, well, this is what I want to do? Because I'm going to be honest with you, being in the present moment and just being, it's a lot harder than you realize. And to leave every problem at the door and walk through and be present for someone who is actively dying, first of all, it's probably one of the greatest gifts you can give someone. But two, wow, I, I'm not sure I could do that. So talk to me a little bit about your personal experience. What drew you to this specific volunteering experience? Well, you know, I, was a, I became a hospice volunteer in 1985 and even carried that role on the side some when I was working as volunteer coordinator, and I'm to this day still a hospice volunteer. But when I retired in 2004, um, uh, you know the the world was my oyster. What was I? What did I? How did I want to spend time? What would I like to? What would be meaningful to do? And the, the, it's called No One Dies Alone. The program is called that. Um, was started at the hospital, and uh, that drew me. So they had a little mini training for it, and uh, of course I was trained already as a hospice volunteer. And um, you know what it does? What it does for me is it it brings me to a place that I can't be in my daily life. Truthfully, um, it my appreciation of life deepens when I'm sitting. So silently, usually, um, being present, um, I feel like it, it makes me feel like the dying are my teachers, that by being with them, I'm learning, I'm learning how to live. Oh, wow. That is a great way to look at it. And we all feel like we want to make a difference in this physical existence that we have. Mom, uh, in the book, you know, Grandma and Grandpa come up a couple of times. Uh, grandma in particular, uh, where you, you reference her and teachings from her. Um, did you, you know, have the same experience with Grandma and Grandpa? Grandma in particular? I mean, Grandma had just died maybe less than a year when you started putting the book together, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but were there, just compare and contrast, because we went through that experience together, which was a beautiful experience, frankly, with both of them. Um, and, you know, really just amazing family time. And, um, I, I have a lot of lessons that I took from that, but I'm curious, how, how would you compare sitting with a stranger versus sitting with your mom or your dad? It's really interesting. Um, it's different in some ways, of course, um, because in families we play a lot of different roles and, and there are a lot of interactions and reactions among us. Fortunately, I have five other siblings and, and we all were so present to mother. Dad died in 2004, just after I retired, and mother died in 2014. And um, both with uh, different courses of illness, but 
the common denominator was that they felt secure, safe, and loved because we were all very present. Yeah, to them. I remember that very well. And intergenerationally, we were present to them. That you know, what it, all, all, all ages. Um, and my role in both of those, you know, I told my, I remember telling my dad, I, I think it, he paid maybe $900 a year for me to go through nurses training back in the early 60s. I said, boy, you have more than gotten your money. For that. <laughs> <laughs> little, little did we realize. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually thinking back with grandma, you having five siblings, I've got God knows how many cousins, and a lot of them were there. and great-grandchildren. Is it possible maybe we're too present? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, both of the experiences really were rich. Um, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't, particular lessons from them don't pop up for me. It's just I feel really good yeah. about how united we were as a family and how uh, much they trusted us and were secure in our um caring for them. Yeah, so I, you know, sure that. I think that's about as good as it gets uh, when you have to say hard goodbye. Because there's never a right time to say that goodbye. No. You used your poetry and wrote about a lot of these experiences in this book. Um, and that's where you sort of, it was how you dealt with it. And you wrote about a lot of your experiences. So please, yes, share share with us one of your poems. Yeah. Um, you know, the poems really um, are my processing. When I, I always bring my, my journal with me when I'm um, sitting vigil. And not that I spend any or much time with it when I'm there. Sometimes it never comes out. But um, many times there's a moment where I am just taken with the mystery or the wonder or the curious curiosity with curiosity um, about something that's happening. And I'll open my journal and write the thought. And the thought goes, just goes for many lines and when it's done it's done it's just it's how I'm how I process that tiny moment of experience and it seems to for me to be um a necessary part of my experience for me to um uh, do that processing um I think that's how I grow um so yeah when you said you know Tell them what it's about. Um, tell them what it's like. To share what it's like for you. This is the poem I'd love to read. It's called Still Point. Me, a stranger at your bedside, your hand held in mine as in this still, dimly lit space that is your hospital room, I breathe with you, matching my breath to your shallow, fading air exchange. How could I know what I was about to receive? Your presence, your dying, brings me to my still point, the place of centering and calm so difficult to access in the hum and buzz of everyday living, a place where nothing exists beyond our shared sacred presence. To not die alone, to bear witness to this sacred transition, to stand in for all who ever loved you, a privilege beyond description. Mm, I love that. I think that says what it's about for me. Wow. And 
Well, so you don't write the poems at the bedside, but you just start writing in your journal. And do the poems come later or do some of the poems come right there? The poem is what I just wrote in my journal. For that one, I would have taken my pen out. Really? And and started the first line and somehow or other the pen keeps going. And when it stops, I close the journal. And that is the poem. Oh, wow. They're un- in the book, they're out of my journal. They're unedited. Um, they're ju- they are my processing. Oh, wow. So this is this has come from that moment. Now, when you read some of these um, poems that you've written, do, does it immediately take you back to that room? Oh, you know, almost every poem still has a, a space or a room for me. Very, very definitely. Um, yeah, it's just, it's such a privilege, Kimberly, to, to it's such a gift first of all to have that silence and that experience of being just a being. Period. End of sentence. That experience of being. Um, not having to do, not having to fix, um, not having to list or make tutus or whatever, just existing. That is such a gift. And then to get that which we are bearing witness to, um, it, it just so feels so powerful. It feels so sacred. And it's not to say, I will interject this, um, it's not to say that everyone wants someone with them when they're dying. Um, Andrew and I had a very interesting conversation about this recently, because I'll let him tell you, but he prefaced it by saying, um, you know, we were talking about advanced directives and things like that, sound theories and stuff, he personally, and um, I just want to share what he prefaced, what he said to me with and he said mom i need to say this to you and i'll just turn it to you andrew yeah um you know i i think that the the idea of, of presence is there's a, there's a social quality to it right and there's been quite a bit of research done and i've learned a lot about this um, over the past couple of years around um the extent to which death occurs with others in the room um, and so I, I think I, I just asked you, I said, you know, what are your reflections or feelings about, about that? You know, that maybe is it, um, if the ultimate objective is to honor people's, people's object, or people's goals, values, and wishes, right? Mm-hmm. If the wish is to be alone and they can't necessarily express themselves, like, how do we, how do we wrestle with that? You know, and, um, you know, I think it's an important that's sort of the beauty, I think, of, of this part of one of the many beautiful things about this part of life is um, how much respect it, there is and it's grounded in what people what people want, and that is should be paramount. And uh, there's a lot of research done that a lot of, a lot of people pass away and die when when there's nobody there. So um, that doesn't necessarily run counter, I think, to the program or what my mom does at all. Mm-hmm. But it is, I think, an important element that we should be um, aware of and respectful of. Mm, that's so true. So what you said to me was... Oh, no, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> well, what I need to tell you, Mom, is that, and this may change, but in the moment when I think about this, the way I feel is oh, like yeah. 
I I think I need to be alone, like for the last 15 minutes of my life or yeah. something. Yeah. I feel like that is work that I have to do myself. Mm. Um, and I may need to be alone to do that. Yeah. So, you know, it, we're always learning, aren't we? And growing. It's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad he shared that with me. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's important small details that would be more of a gift knowing that that he wanted something like this and gave, gave you give, would give you permission that that was okay to do. I mean, anything we say now is how we feel in the moment. Right. Um, right. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking of this. Someone, uh, a dear friend said to me after she read my book, didn't it take a lot of courage to write that kind of to expose yourself in that way? And it was like, I said, Patty, it, it never occurred to me. Um, no, that I, I've never been so comfortable with anything in my life because the book is who I am, period. It, there was no courage involved. There was work and pulling it together, but uh, for content, no, it, it, it was just, it's simply being who I am completely. Is there one experience by being a vigil volunteer? You write about many of them, but is there one that stands out? And is that reflected in one of your poems that just is your go-to, is when you think, recall about your vigil volunteer experience, what is the one that comes to the mind? I think the poem, Still Point, that I read certainly does for me because it 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 um, just weaves together the the tapestry of what the experience is like for me consistently. So I don't have a, a single experience that stands out. I, I have differing ones, you know, I mean, one experience that comes to mind is when I was with this um, fellow in his fifties who had been chronically ill for a long time and he just couldn't settle. And um, he was Roman Catholic. I had learned and his parents had always taken care of him. And he was just so receptive to anything. He was, he was awake. And um, it was late. I often do this like from nine at night until midnight or one in the morning. That's a shift I often take because that time of day is just a great time to be there for me. And um, I just started humming while well, I'm not. Roman Catholics now, I was in my youth. I just started humming every hymn and chant that I could think of <laughs> from, from my youth. You know, those things do stay with oh, you. Oh, yeah. And I just sat next to bed and, and hummed. And, um, and, you know, he just settled. He went to sleep. Um, you know, it, just, it was just kind of a sweet moment. And I, I also think of a time when it was really hard for me to be present with someone who was really um, struggling and really in their, their last, they, they actually died while I was there. And I, I didn't know it was going to happen that quickly, but um, a situation where my experience is that the care in the hospital has been phenomenal and the staff is so appreciative of we that go in and we'll just sit vigil with people um, when they're working. Um, but there was one time where I felt like 
um, here, caring staff could have been more responsive in this particular instance. And um, it was just, um, it was just a hard experience for me. And I literally left and went down and at midnight and sat in the hospital lobby by myself with my journal and just wrote and wrote and and tried to work my way through an experience that 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 I felt I was grieving. I, I know I was mm. grieving. Um, I would have liked a better ending for that woman. Mm. So you know, a lot of different ones come to mind. Um, one thing about the book that I'd love to say is a surprise for me. I mean, I had no intention of publishing a book. Um, a couple of friends, when they heard a couple of my poems, were the ones that urged me to do this. Um, but the publisher that I was with told me that it was a niche book. So I thought, well, okay, I thought about that after and thought, okay, so it's probably for, you know, people who are willing to look at and be open about death. You know, it's probably people that will read it are probably Buddhists or hospice workers or that sort of thing. And I got thinking about it and I thought, that's no niche book. Is there anyone that isn't going to die? That's right. And the the audience that I had from it um, has proven that to me. I'm just, I, I'm often very caught off guard by the ways people use it that I didn't anticipate um, because it kind of uh, role models through the written word how to be with people who are dying. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly enough, I think for some people that don't want to get close to that, um, it's like there's a, a plexiglass between them and death when they're reading my book. You know, they can read as little or as much as they want. Right. Take in as much or as little as fish. And, but, but it's a protected, in a protected place. And then, of course, there's other people who just open their hearts wide and yeah. soak it in like, like, like a sponge. It's a great point. And I feel like we've talked a lot about how the response that you get from different people and how um, surprised you've been by the different responses mm-hmm. to it. And it's been amazing when you think about it, just the, the how people have opened up to you and wanted to talk to you about their personal experiences. And it really does have that sort of unlocking quality to it, I think. It's, it's interesting. And that's why I'm committed to keeping it out there because I think you know, there's a wonderful quote from this this woman, an elder, wrote to me and said, um, uh, this little book is much, much larger than its physical size. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's a lot of your work. I mean, it really, it for me, it made death beautiful uh-huh. and less scary and, and that it was it was normalizing something in a very poetic way. Um, but it also made me be aware of how important the present moment is. And if we're talking to someone, how important it is to give them our complete attention, whether they're actively dying or actively living. I mean, it, the present moment is so important. Yeah, what a great phrase. And I, and I, would, I would just add to that that you know, I think 
something that we see on the national level and uh, in communities across the country and, and internationally is this reluctance to think about death and to just an overall reluctance to plan, <laughs> um, but also in reluctant uh, culturally to be thinking about death and, and, and wrestling with it. And um, I think that your book, as Kimberly said, normalizes some of that and it allows people um, uh, a window to, in their minds and their hearts, to experience that really important part of life. And we see it every day, you know, with, with folks in, in the hospice community. And uh, I think we've made a lot of progress as a country, but we have a long way to go. And I think your, your book is one of those nice windows of opportunity. Uh, you know, I'm learning that myself about it. And that's why I'm committed to keeping it out there. Yeah. Because, because I believe that it opens conversations, it opens hearts, and it's safe. Yeah, and I also think that it, this is a great read for those who work in end of life to really recall and and put so much value on what they do um, because sometimes we f- forget about how important it is to to just be present even in our professional lives when we're serving those facing a serious illness. I mean, I I tell you, I think every hospice needs to own at least 20 of your books and <laughs> give them to staff members and families and I mean, I just I think this is a beautiful way to to really put your experience as a human being um being there present as individuals go on to their next adventure. Now, this is where what's really important to me is is where do people find this book um, and how do they find you? Oh, thank you. Well, it's available on Amazon, um, Vigil, the Poetry of Presence. Um, so it can be obtained there, but they also um, can reach me. Perhaps you can put contact information on your site. I absolutely Happy will. to um, inscribe books people. I always have plenty of books here at the house and happy to ship them out. I also um, have when groups have come to me and wanted to purchase a quantity, um, there's a discount when you buy a quantity, so over 10 books. So, um, you know, when someone, a CEO wants to give them to their board or a, a volunteer office wants to give them to their volunteers or whatever. I'm, I'm happy to um, accommodate that. It's all about keeping the conversation going. Yeah, and this is a great Mother's Day gift, too. I mean, the, this is such an important, um, it, it could be for professionals. I mean, we're, we're in Mother's Day, and there's a lot of us out there that we don't have our mother. Um, and this has been really a great read. And it made me really feel that uh, even even though they're not here anymore, the presence is still there. So it's amazing. And so I will absolutely put um, where I'll even put the Amazon link on there at the bottom of this podcast so that you can have direct access to the book. And I will also um, provide some contact information if you would like to order larger volumes for your staff uh, or just family members. Um, So this is a must read for sure. Thank you, Kimberly. You know, this this has really been wonderful. Well, I mean, I tell you, you are a gift. You are a gift. Not you yourself, but you also your your work to the world. And I'm I'm so honored that Andrew even mentioned you in passing and sent me this book. And I 
am so in love with who you are as a person as well as is this work of art. And are you working on any other writing projects at this time? I, I don't. I, I always have journals nearby and I always bring a journal with me when I sit vigil. And I want to say as complimentary as you were a moment ago, there are a lot of these out there doing this amazing, um, amazing um making this amazing contribution, you know, generous hearts out there, compassionate hearts. I, I do have a poem I'd love to read to close, if that's Please. all right. It's the last poem in my book. I would love that. The poem is called Important Work This Dying. Important work this dying, lying in wait, existing, sleep closed eyes or unresponsive stares. What goes on? Is it dreaming or oblivion? Does a mind chatter? Or does it float on the waves of immeasurable endlessness? When the time comes, will I have the courage to say, let me do this the best way I can. Let me go through my dying process in as conscious and intentional a way as is possible. I want to suck the marrow out of life, to lift high the blinds on life's windows, and embrace the warmth of sunlight, absorb the beauty of the night sky. I can do it if you'll be there with me, as I also face storms and clouds. Let's be courageous together as I walk my journey to forevermore. I love that. I can't tell you. What a pleasure it has been to spend this time with you and your son, Andrew. Um, you guys are doing amazing work. And again, I will have contact information and I will be promoting this book throughout the next several months. But, you know, happy Mother's Day. And what a what a gift you are to your kids. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. And uh, you are a true gift. Oh. Especially to me. So thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, it's been wonderful. Now the Kleenex will come out. Oh. <laughs> it, it's been wonderful, Kimberly. Yeah. Thank you for putting us together. Sure. Having us do this. It was just so, so special. Do me a favor. Why don't you take a selfie picture um, after we hang up? And, and that will be the picture that we use for this podcast. I would love that if, if that would work out. Okay. Okay, great. Happy to. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Kimberly. Yeah. Well, look, happy. Yeah. Andrew, you're, you're, thank you for doing all your work in Washington. And, um, and man, it's so beautiful to hear a mother and son um, doing similar but different work when it comes to improving end of life. And, uh, and Pam, thank you so much for this uh, poetry of presence, this, this gift to the world. Um, I really do appreciate you guys taking the time today. Oh, this Thank is you. incredibly special for us, too. Thank you, Kimberly. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.